It's taken five and a half years, many crashed Skype sessions, waking up all sorts of hours to speak to people across the planet who are hours behind on the international dateline, and countless cups of tea. Welcome to episode 100 of Love That Album Podcast. Yay! started the podcast in 2011 as an excuse to talk about music with people who loved it and who performed it. He started out with no idea as to what he was doing, and now he thinks he has an idea, but isn't really sure. Still, the original mission remains to talk about music while dancing around the architecture. For episode 100, Morris is joined once again by Jeff Smith, who's been on board since the very beginning, and LTA newcomer Dave Anderson to make a new attempt to discuss the creative peak in John Hyatt's catalogue, Bring the Family. There were two unsuccessful attempts for episode two of the show. These failed due to what is known in LTA parlance as the Hyatt curse. Morris will explain in a few minutes. The gents start off discussing the history of John Hyatt's music prior to Bring the Family, their first recollections of his music, his importance to Americana, and, of course, their thoughts on the album itself, with all its contradicting themes of hope and despondency. Come and celebrate this 100-episode milestone of Love That Album. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to bring the family. Heart untrue. Still I thought that I was so strong That my will could force me through I didn't know it would be so long Learning how to love you kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Episode 100 of Love That Album Podcast. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say I was not always sure I was going to make it this far. And I know that 100, in the case of some podcasts, is almost like a minor achievement. For me, it's been a major one. Let me tell you that. Five and a half years. We started out recording every two weeks, then every three weeks, and nowadays once a month. And given that this episode is a week late, it's 
not even once a month. God, I don't know. But anyway, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much for having kept on the journey. If you've done so, if you're new to the program, welcome on board. Lovely to have your company. And speaking of being happy to have people's company, I'd love to introduce to you the two wonderful people on the other end of a Skype connection who have decided to give up their morning sleep and their late night sleep. So first of all, a man who's been with me from the show right almost from the very, very beginning, my good friend Jeff Smith. Good morning, Jeff. Morning, Morris. How are we going? Oh, well, I'm like you, still trying to wake up. But we've got to be awake for the listenership out there because they're listening at three in the afternoon, nine o'clock at night, three in the morning, and they're not expecting excuses from us. They just want music talk, and we're going to give it to them. The other person on the other end of uh, the Skype connection, a first-timer to the program, and up until about 15 minutes ago, we'd never even spoken, but I have good feelings that he's going to come through with a lot of wonderful music talk. Welcome to the program, Mr. Dave Anderson. Hi, Morris. How are you? In good health. How are you? Great. I'm I'm very good. Very good. It's uh, Saturday evening here. Um, Sunday morning, I know, with you guys, but uh, really looking forward to helping with the show. Well, let's just sort of go a little bit into the back history. And now, this episode, as you would have heard from uh, Joanne's introduction, we are going to be discussing the John Hyatt album, Bring the Family. Now, there are probably some of you out there who are thinking, now, hang on, I have a vague recollection that in episode two, you talked about Bring the Family. Let's just go a little bit back on history here. Yes, we did. And no, we didn't. So, Jeff, we recorded our discussion about Bring the Family (laughs) twice for episode two. This is like back in the early days when podcasting was new to us both. Didn't know anything about (laughs) the format, how to record. We just knew that we were going to get on the other end of a Skype connection and just shoot the shit and talk about an album that we both loved. What happened? That goes down in the annals of Love That Album history, I guess. It was the first sort of invocation of the the succubus, the John Hyatt curse. Lord Voldemort himself struck. Um, We had a wonderful discussion. Yeah, we had a fantastic discussion. I mean, I think we were both particularly proud of of some of the moments of transcendence that we achieved during that that session and uh, that you were were editing it and the file ate itself. Well, look. Twice. I think the first time what happened was that I was editing the program and then stupidly, due to my lack of experience, either file imploded or I might have accidentally deleted it or something stupid like that. But what we did have was the preamble and you know generally on these shows we don't do a preamble anymore we just go straight to talking about the album but in those days we had like a bit of a preamble hey jeff what have you been listening to lately that survives and there's a little bit of hyatt talk there and i confess i've not gone back to listen to it so i have no idea what we said five and a half years ago about this the second time because i i came to you and i said look can we do this again because you know i screwed up big time let's do this again the software which i've not used since just didn't record us or it it indicated like it was recording us but I think it got one end and not the other or maybe neither end it was just an empty file so at the time you said to me Morris I'm not doing this a third time but for episode 100 I convinced you to do it a third time we came to the conclusion as you said that there was a Hyatt Hex but but didn't mention of his name ruin another podcast somewhere down the track or or cause you technical difficulties when someone mentioned him again well anytime someone mentioned the word hired I did have not to the extent where the file was unrecoverable but I did have 
technical issues along the way. So you and I became genuinely convinced that the name Hyatt was a curse for the Love That Album podcast. And not only that, anytime either of us mentioned Hyatt in our personal lives, something would go a bit askew. So, <laughs> But I've decided, no, we've got to break the curse. The listeners out there want to know what we think of Bring the Family. So by gum, we're going to give it to them. And we're going to this Hyatt curse. And here we are. We're going to talk about Bring the Family. And that is it. And if this file is corrupted after the recording, then it just means that we were never meant to talk about John Hyatt ever again. Never meant to listen to him. And maybe Love That Album is supposed to end on episode 99. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see how we go. A really, really big curse there. But never mind. That's enough of me rambling on. The other thing that I should make mention of is that our regular correspondent, Eric Reanimator, will be uh, bringing his segment later on in the show. For those of you who are new to the program, Eric Reanimator out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, always presents a little segment called An Album I Love. So he basically does what we're going to do, but in 10 minutes. And he always picks an album to discuss that has a theme related to the main album. And, well, this time he's gone and picked an album which is not really stylistically similar to John Hyatt's Bring the Family, but he's gone and picked an album from a band called Sar Win, but if you read it, it reads as Sam Hain, and it's a band put together by uh, one Glenn Danzig, ex of The Misfits. And the name of the album is in oh, Inition. In, 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 oh, I can't remember. Anyway, never mind. Uh, but he seems to have found a connection between John Hyatt, or rather, the Love That Album connection to John Hyatt, being He Who Shall Not Be Named and this album by Sarwin. I'll let him explain when we get to that segment. But for the moment, what we're going to do is have a quick break, get a glass of water, grab a beer, have a cup of tea, whatever it is that you need to do, and then we'll be back to talk about John Hyatt and and bring the family. You're listening to episode 100 of Love That Up with Jeff on one end and Dave on the other end. We'll be back in a moment. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. Did you miss us? I hope so. You'll listen to episode 100 of Love That Album. I've said that quite a few times. I'm not going to uh, carry on with that. We're here to talk about John Hyatt's album, Bring the Family. It's been pretty well established that John Hyatt's career sort of started for a second time, a bit like this podcast, with his eighth album, Bring the Family. Uh, and it was his first album for a Records. He'd already written hundreds of songs for a publishing company in the early to mid-70s before getting recording deals with Epic and MCA and Geffen. So before we go talking a little bit about his early career and the things that led up to recording Bring the Family, I guess the inevitable questions, and the newest guest here, 
What was your introduction Thank you. to John Hyatt? Well, I suppose my, my very first um, song of John Hyatt that I ever heard, and I didn't even realise it was one of his, my brother was quite a big uh, Dave Edmonds fan, and he had um, <clears throat> one of Dave's uh, albums from, I think it was 1982 or 83, uh, Twangin', and there's a song on there called Something Happens. which is a John Hyatt song from All of a Sudden, uh, which was his first album for Geffen. That was probably the first time I ever heard a John Hyatt song. But my first actual exposure to a full album of his was um, there's a magazine over here. I don't know if you guys have it in Australia. It's called Q. It's a a music magazine. Absolutely, yeah. You get it, it, yeah. Well, Q, it was actually not Bring the Family that I was first exposed to. It was Slow Turning, its follow-up. And Q gave it an absolutely glowing five-star review. So I I was in a phase of my life at that time where I was kind of trying new music that I hadn't heard, heard before and I thought you know this guy sounds like a, you know he would be right up my street I bought it and played it straight through and I absolutely loved it sometimes you know you just put an album on and just everything on it just just hits you you know um, sometimes it takes a good few listens but this one just everything right through from Drive South uh, very first song right through absolutely loved it I thought right okay I need more of this guy so Bring the Family was my was my next purchase you know yeah as far as I remember, I think I told Jeff about John Hyatt probably not too long after Slow Turning came out and would have been about maybe 89, something like that. And he shared my enthusiasm and, uh, and you know, and the rest is history. He's been a big fan ever since, like myself. Right, yeah. I know that we've uh, spent many a time, Jeff and myself, just saying, oh, have you heard this new Hyatt album? Have you heard uh, that new one? What did you think of that? So, Jeff, you did definitely share Dave's enthusiasm right from the start. I vaguely recall Dave gave me a bunch of uh, cassette tapes um, I hope the listener can remember what a cassette tape is. Um, I think there was. I think you gave me Rai Cooder, and there was certainly Slow Turning, and I can't. I can't remember all what. And uh, I, I put it on the shelf, and I thought I must listen to that. Must listen to that. And then uh, one night I was. Uh, I was at a loose end. I thought, I'll stick one of those tapes on. Because I lived in university halls of residence at the time, I uh, remember sticking the headphones in, putting slow turning on. And and like Dave said, it was one of those albums that, you know, you didn't zip it through. And what's the next track like? What's the next track? It just came on and I just listened to it all the way through and remember thinking, hey, that's that's pretty cool, that one. And listening to it again, you know, and again. And, you know, basically wearing the tape out and going and and buying it myself pretty soon after. And uh, since then, I've uh, built up a, a healthy, large collection of John Hyatt. I've got all, obviously all his studio stuff and outtakes and live stuff and bootlegs and other things that you're probably not supposed to mention on podcasts. <laughs> Let me ask you this. I'll put it to both of you. I mean, Hyatt has become, I guess, synonymous and, and probably a strong progenitor of what modern Americana has come to be. Was he sort of like the first artist in that vein that you were both like a big fan of? Was was like listening to Slow Turning a big revelation for for you in terms of what you've been listening to in contrast at the time? Um, do you want to go first, Jeff? Yeah, sure. Um, well, kind of, yes. I mean, I was, I was, already, a, I was already a massive fan.
massive Springsteen fan by that point, and I'd been listening a lot to Steve Earle as well, so mm. I, I guess I was kind of, I was getting, starting to go down that road anyway. Listening to John Hyatt kind of opened up a whole new sort of spectrum of, of music out there, because um, obviously being myself and just stick to John Hyatt, I looked at the other musicians that were on the on the records and looked at some of their stuff, and, you know, through discussing it as well with Dave, he'd, he'd gone his way and found his stuff. We swapped sources and, and, and possibilities as well, because, you know, pre-internet days, you couldn't just look up John Hyatt and, you know, go from there, so, yeah, it was just a lot, a lot through discussion, and you know, and since then, you know, the Americana thing for me has uh, has become one of the the main uh, the main sources of my uh, my listening pleasure. So, mm. so yeah, I mean, I think John Hyatt was was certainly central to to me opening up to a whole lot of whole range of new artists. It's sort of interesting because, like, through the '90s, early '90s on, where bands like Uncle Tupelo and, and Sun Volt came on the scene, it's sort of sparking off that whole no depression movement. And you know, it's it's a similar language to what the traditional Americana is, but they went and took it off in more dark directions. It's sort of a, a similar wheelhouse, and yet it's very, very different as well. Yeah, absolutely. And also with some of John Hyatt's pre-Bring the Family stuff, because I like John Hyatt, I sort of liked that stuff because I liked his style, and it, it opened up other areas there, and, you know, more of his sort of poppy type type genres and you know I got through into liking Nick Lowe and a lot of a lot of his stuff and from there as well I mean I think Dave probably knows a lot more about Nick Lowe and and his uh cowboy outfits than I do but I've sent to, I, was, I was sent to Dave just the other day that we thought that uh, you know up until sort of bring the family Hyatt was sort of an artist looking for a genre to almost you know right. identify strongly with and certainly bring the family slow turning kind of did that for him gave him some roots to build off and you know he took it from there but I mean he's never lost that sort of eclectic sound and mix you know of, of, of influences but certainly much more central into the Americana type mm. work. That's true because if, if you actually if you actually look at John Hyatt's kind of previous three studio albums before Bring the Family, there were a real a real mixture of stuff. I mean, his first one for Geffen, all of a sudden, I, I have to say, I don't really like it. It's very synthesizery and it's very of the time. It's not dated well <clears throat> amongst a lot of John Hyatt fans. It's it's not one of their favourites, you know. Had had a few good songs in it, but um, it was it was kind of very of the time. And then was followed up with probably one of my favourite John Hyatt albums, uh, Riding with the King. Again, it's it's an album that's a real, to use a soccer parlance, uh, an album of two halves because it was produced by completely different people using diff- completely different in- um, musicians on on the two sides. One side was a couple of American guys who play- played all the instruments basically on the album along with John. Second half was produced by Nick Lowe with the guys from <laughs> Jeff just mentioned the cowboy outfit, but Nick Lowe's band uh, around about the, the early eighties was a band called uh, Nick Lowe and the Cowboy Outfit, and the guys that were in that were Paul Paul Carr. Everybody knows from Squeeze and Ace, uh, Martin Belmont, who was in guitar, who was in Graham Parker and The Rumour, and earlier back in the uh, pub rock scene uh, with a yes. band called Ducks Deluxe. And uh, the drummer was a guy called Bob Irwin. And, and they, they made up John's 83 touring band, uh, as well as playing on half of the, the album uh, Riding with the King. And then he did uh, Warming Up to the Ice Age, which 
obviously he had a, he had a duet uh, with, with Elvis Costello in there, so it was a real mishmash of things, you know. And yeah, and and I know I know also when he was about to make Bring the Family before they did it, he was speaking to Andrew Lauder, who was the boss of Demon Records in the UK at the time, who who had signed him. And I know John had kind of said to him, "What kind of album do you want me to make?" Because he was really kind of unsure of what people wanted him to do. And I think Andrew Lauder said to him, um, "You can sing uh, sing in the shower, and we'll record it and put that's that right, out if you want." Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think you're you're right, Jeff. He'd had a real mixed uh, identity through through mm. the eighties, uh, early eighties to the mid eighties. I think he really locked into his style on Bring the Family. You know, I'm wondering if he'd been misadvised and you know did like because you mentioned all of a sudden it was a very synthesized album, but it seemed like everyone mm. was doing that. You know, maybe Neil Young was doing uh, synthesized. <laughs> Sized albums with trans, although mind you, that was less of a industry advisement. That was just something that he felt he had a personal connection to for family reasons. But yeah, the 80s was for, for some artists. Um, so, you know, the overproduction was the order of the day, and it was a, absolutely the, yeah the, the decade that taste forgot. I mean, look, <laughs> can, I, I confess, I never sort of really explored terribly heavily his uh, pre-Bring the Family material. I had a I had a friend many years ago who played me I don't remember which one of the albums it was. I don't know if it was Slugline or Two Bit Monsters, mm-hmm. but at, at the time I remember thinking, eh, "Yeah, this is a bit ordinary. I don't need to really pursue this terribly much." I have listened mm-hmm. in recent times to Yoel Court, the uh, mm-hmm. best, the best the of compilation. Yeah, right. Eric, the, the best of the MCA and Geffen years, and I have to admit, well, his chops as a songwriter were always there. But yeah. and, and and you look at the actual, um, you look at the established artists that have actually recorded cover of songs from that period. I mean, just, just as an example, like, I mean, Roseanne Cash did a cover of Pink Bedroom. Which, if, if memory serves me right, is on Two Bit Monsters, is it? I don't recall. It's in, in there somewhere, yeah. Some well, it's either that or Slugline, I think. But yeah, there, I mean, there's actually quite a lot of the songs from that period, um, you know, were, were covered by well established artists, you know. But he was also just writing songs that he would never record for other artists because he was like mm. a. a got a little bit of an earner through uh, a publishing deal that he got, I think, back in 73 or 74, didn't he? Well, that's right. That's how he started off before he started as, as an actual solo artist. He was uh, he was he was working in Nashville as a, as a songwriter uh, for Tree Publishing. I think his first big hit was uh, Sure As I'm Sitting Here, which I think Three Dog Night did a cover of. But yeah, you're right. He was he was a kind of a staff writer for, for a few years before he did his first album. Which was sort of a thing in the 60s and you know, less of a known deal, I guess, for for people in the 70s or the 80s. I'm trying to sort of work out the chronology here. I don't know if it was before I was already a fan of Hyatt or after, but I remember hearing a song that he'd written called Angel Eyes that Jeff Healy, another JH, mm-hmm. uh, did on yeah. uh, on his second album. Girl, you're looking fine tonight And every guy has got you in his side 
sort of thought oh well mm-hmm. that's a that's a rather nice little song I, I remember though hearing an interview with jeff healy who he was fairly dismissive of the song so but mm. I, i'm trying to remember if that was something that i heard of his before or after i was already a hyatt fan as for my own introduction to hyatt as a performer my first album was stolen moments which was the one after slow turning <laughs> a good yeah. mate of mine he was so crazy about stolen moments he bought me a copy and in australia i don't know if this was released anywhere in the world for a time there was like a bonus cd of a few tracks from a gig that he did here in Melbourne at a venue that's no longer around called The Palace in the, the suburb of St Kilda. Mm. It was a limited thing here. I mean, my version of the CD didn't come with that. I'm extremely envious of anyone who, who does have it. John Hyatt came to Australia that first time with his band and like they were performing as a support for Robert Cray. And for, mm. for months and months, all the discussion that went around was, did you see that band that blew Robert Cray off the stage? <laughs> John Hyatt was apparently playing like a whirlwind, like a madman with all this passion. And then Robert Cray came on with his band and just they were just too cool for school and playing you know, all the songs <laughs> from Strong Persuader, which was the big album of the time. And it was a little bit of a you know lazy Wednesday evening sort of deal once he came on. And I had to wait for years, I think, until Crossing Muddy Waters before he came out for a second tour. And that was just him and a guitar and a piano. But mind you, he was... He had so much charisma and so much passion in the way he played. The fact that there wasn't a band almost wasn't a big deal. That album, Stolen Moments, it just absolutely blew me away at the, at the time. And you know, the highlights in you know, A Child of the Wild Blue Yonder was, mm. I think, the first song yeah. that, I was, that I was introduced to. And... She has a wind as a witness. She has feelings that fly by night. It's not love if it holds too tight You can fly beside her You gotta go where your heart says lovely ballads in back of my mind and through your hands just i I just thought wow what a what a songwriter he just he just really gets it it's not overstated it's not overproduced Uh, and then you know had that uh rock back billy which was 
great piece of acoustic rock. It's just for me, it was absolutely a, an almost perfect album, and, and produced by a, you know, a yeah. name that I was well familiar with mm. in, in Glenn Johns, who'd gone and uh, Glenn Johns, of course, you know, worked with uh, the Stones and with the Who. But I, I guess the other revelation was his son Ethan Johns, who was you know, a multi instrumentalist who was playing guitar mm. and drums all over the album. It's just a, yeah. a, a beautiful yeah. sounding recording. So um, I have great memories of that period because uh, when I when I first discovered Stolen Moments, and then I got Bring the Family, and I thought, wow these are two fantastic albums and then for the next three or four years he just released great album after great album you know as you say stolen moments was brilliant i i've always been a huge fan of perfectly good guitar as well i think it's a great album sometimes i Slight fly in the ointment was uh, Little Village wasn't great. (laughs) It was it it didn't live up to to the expectation. We we will (laughs) we will come to that as we get because that's part of the the later history. We will definitely come to that. But look, okay. So as as you bring up the point, yeah, that these were killer albums at the time. You know, from while he was recording for A and M. So do you think that those early albums, once again coming back to the MCA Geffen years, (laughs) are some of those albums shortcomings in some relation to production or him still developing as a songwriter. I mean, he he had written hundreds of songs, as we know, for for other people, but obviously he wants to keep what he feels personally aligned to for his own recording. So uh, some of those albums, I mean, you've already gone and mentioned uh, all of a sudden there, Dave, as being very much a product of its time. You love writing with The King, for instance. I mean, was that like an album that you think is as good as anything that he did in those early years with A&M? Or is he still developing as a songwriter, do you think? I think, yeah, uh, as Jeff touched on earlier there, um, uh, some of the style of the stuff he did in, in the kind of early 80s was, was just a world away from, from what he did in the late 80s. I think he probably was still developing as a as an artist and trying to kind of find a, a genre that kind of suited him because it is very, very varied. Jeff, out of the two of us, he was the first one of us to go back and get John's first two albums and and there, you know, the, the, there's a there's a big gap between Overcoats, the second of his uh, albums, to to Slugline in '79. There's about four years. They are stylistically kind of quite all over the place. So I think he probably was just trying to find his feet, as it were, you know, as a as an artist. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things at, at work there. If you look at John's sort of personal history as well. I've heard him interviewed and he discussed in the early days that when it came to playing live, he was so incredibly shy and terrified that he used to play guitar and sing facing away from the audience. Um, You know, he used to stand with his back to the audience, not out of any sort of, you know, Bob Dylan aloofness, but more out Mm. of uh, just sheer terror of facing an audience. And and also through that period up to Bring the Family, you know, about mid-80s, he was drinking and drugging like a bandit. You know, there was an awful lot of, uh, an awful lot of mixed up stuff going on in his personal life. Yeah, yeah. And he'd been through a few few wives, one of which 
had committed suicide as well. Right. Well. Yeah. So I mean, you know, his, his life was uh, his life was going a bit weird as well. So it's it's no great surprise that professionally mm. he was maybe looking for a home. You know, almost looking for just who he was, what he wanted to do, what you know, and mm. probably getting a lot of advice from a lot of people because he'd been writing as as we've mentioned an awful lot of songs for for other people. So he was probably being pulled in all directions. Mm. And knowing what sort of David Geffen was like when he was signed to Geffen, um, he was probably getting a fair bit of pressure put on him to write commercial songs. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I, I I know uh, I know that people like Don Henley don't have a great deal to say about David Geffen. Not anything positive, anyway. I think the early days when he set up Asylum Records. I mean, the first album that got recorded the Asylum Records label was uh, the songwriter Judy Sill, who I absolutely adore. And mm. I, I get the impression that you know, it, probably because he was just starting, he was very very encouraging of it. I mean, as it became more mm. business to him, then he had to come out with the commercial hits. But in his early days. Mm. It was all about the songwriting, and even if you know you, you consider that you know he's got someone like John Hyatt on his label, and yes, it, you know he still has to see the commercial side of it, but he was hiring him as the singer-songwriter, and he's I, I still got to yeah. have some level of healthy respect for someone who's choosing to go for someone who is a songwriter who, who respects a songwriter mm. craft, and yeah. so kudos yeah, to, to Gavin for that. I think that uh, it is cyclical. Cyclical, hard word to say. And I think it goes that uh, we get caught up from time to time in the technology and the advancements of the technology, and then it gets so far wrapped up in that that the art starts serving the technology rather than the other way around, you know. And it's just it's just guys making noise with with new toys, basically. We still haven't sort of come to the album of Bring the Family yet. We've still been, you know, discussing all this pre-A&M years sort of stuff. But before we get into talking about Bring the Family per se, and we might actually go to another break just to get a glass of water or something like that before we do that. But I do want to make a comparison. I, I think I'd indicated this to you in our uh, written correspondences before, you know, before we uh, got together to record this, that one of our heroes, uh, uh, Bruce Springsteen, released an album in 1987, the same year that Bring the Family came out. And I see a lot of interesting comparisons and direct contrasts between Tunnel of Love and Bring the Family. So, you know, the the superficial one is both albums came out in 1987, but also both albums represent a major departure musically from what had preceded it. Although, in contrast, Springsteen was at the top, coming off the commercial pinnacle of his career. Not necessarily his artistic pinnacle, but certainly his commercial pinnacle. And you know, Hyatt was certainly not. And in fact, you know, Hyatt had been evicted from three record labels and Bruce has been with the same label all his life. The less than superficial similarity, as I've seen between Tunnel of Love and uh, what came to be with Bring the Family, was the turmoil in their lives inspired the songs for each of these albums for what i guess a lot of people consider their creative peaks and i know that for me tunnel of love it's not my favorite springsteen album but it's certainly in the top three and it is a creative pinnacle and certainly i think we'd i'd like to think we're all in agreement that bring the family is a creative pinnacle for uh, John Hyatt. But yeah, the, the events in their lives, Bruce was going through marriage turmoil and Hyatt, as I think you'd already mentioned there, Dave, uh, and he'd had a wife who'd committed suicide and 
there'd been, uh, as I think you'd said, Jeff, uh, drug and uh, alcohol problems. So there was a lot of turmoil, and this both came to a head with both these incredible albums, which musically are very, very different, but they're both speaking to speaking to a lot of the difficulties in their lives. And I think where Tunnel of Love is all pretty relentless and dark. And Bring the Family is light and shade. There's some very dark material on the album, but there's also a lot of hope for the future. And in some ways, I almost consider Bring the Family, maybe if not for the fact that the song order is not quite right, but I almost consider Bring the Mm. Family to be a concept album. It's telling a story. I can see an arc going through all these songs, except it's maybe not apparent because the song order doesn't quite fit. Or maybe it does. I don't know. Yeah. Really could make a very good case that if you change the order of a couple of these songs, you've got the events of John Hyatt's <laughs> life going from his uh, leaving Geffen Records and his wife committing suicide, a new love in his life, and bring the family coming out. Well, it, it hadn't. Come, he recorded it under circumstances that he didn't know it was going to come out. I, I'm almost wondering whether he was just recording this because, as you say, Demon Records had said, will finance you to record something. Mm, yeah. So what do you guys think? Do you think those are valid comparisons? Do you see comparison to any other artist of the time? Um, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would agree that there are, there are definite sort of parallels, that it's a major turning point in, in both artists' lives. Um, I think with the Tunnel of Love album for Springsteen, that's that was a man who was still struggling to make a bit of sense of what was going on. Can I hear hear him almost growing up and becoming a you know becoming an adult and a man and how to look at relationships and men and women and all that kind of all that kind of gear and uh, you know maybe he's figured it out by now but and if he has maybe he can tell us but. Uh, <laughs> I think John Hyatt, I think the Bring the Family album is an album for me of reconciliation with both himself and those around him. Right. It's definitely an awful lot of sentiment, you know, speaking from experience of a man who's finally come out the other side of alcoholism and addiction. And there's a lot of relief on that album. There's a lot of, as you said, hope. There's a lot of, you know, thank God that's over I can start rebuilding now. It's sort of, you know, mm. that kind of bringing the family, it's sort of like bringing back the family almost, you know, and, and you know, that's the song Learning How to Love You for me is he's learning how to love himself. Never really done it before. He's been too busy, you know, drinking and drugging and, you know, mm. all that kind of stuff. And now he's just, he's got to actually figure out who John Hyatt is again. You know, and there's an awful lot of like parallels with uh, God and religion and stuff in there. I mean, it's not overtly religious, obviously, but there are songs, you know, like "Have a Little Faith in Me." There's sort of the religious terminology kicking about, which um, is, for, you know, again for me, there's a lot of the language of recovery in there. Um, and he's in, you know, in '87, pretty early recovery, and that's the kind of emotion and the kind of stuff that you go through at that point and it's you know it just captures it absolutely perfectly and it goes on through right through there's glimpses of that right into the album um stolen moments back in my mind is a is his is his alcoholism story If you listen to it, you know. um, So, yeah, I mean, there there are parallels there. I think Hyatt's kind of a little bit further down the track and figuring his stuff out 
on Bring the Family, then Springsteen is on Tunnel of Love. Interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I think um, I might do that later on. You know, listen to one after the other and and, and hear more of what, what you're saying probably coming through, Morris. I don't know, Dave. Have you got you got any thoughts on that? I mean, I I'm, I can't speak from the Springsteen side of things because, as you probably know, Jeff, I I've never really been a Springsteen fan. I I, I certainly don't dislike him, but uh, I've just it's just one of these artists that for one reason or another I've never actually just gone and bought his albums. And I I, I know certain songs my my brother had one Springsteen <laughs> album that I used to play. That was all he had was uh, Darkness on the Edge of Town, as far as I remember. But no, it, from from a point of view of Bring the Family, yeah, I, as Morris was saying there, there are some quite dark points on it, but there are some real, and as Jeff was saying there as well, some songs of hope, you know, things like, you know, things like Thank You Girls, quite, you know, it's quite an upbeat song. Um, Memphis in the Meantime, the opener, is, is, is a real kind of rollicking kind of, Let's get on out of here and have some fun, you know. Mm. Uh, and 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 even like you know, your dad did. Has I know I know it has a lyric in there that Jeff and I both loved, you know. But the uh, help your sta- help the starving children to get well, but let my brother's hamster burn in hell, you know. I mean, like <laughs> it's it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's I, I, I was going to say, I think that's a crucial thing. Is that Hyatt has always had a sense of humour. I think he toned it down yeah. for bring the family, but he's always had a sense of humor i mean I, I wonder if sometimes it's been to his detriment i mean i know that jeff before you mentioned that you've got a number of boots as you know as do i and i, I remember there was one song which i don't think ever appeared on any of his earlier albums but he's performed it live you know quite a number of times he wrote a song about infidelity it was a wonderful world the picture too was bright there was so much to do on a saturday night plenty of talk during commercials, sometimes even popcorn in bed. I've been a model provider, you must admit to that. Lovely rented bungalow, two terrific little cats. Is there something that I might have missed? You haven't heard a word I said. Since his Came between us. Called Since's Penis Came Between Us. If you get past <laughs> if you get past the title, it's actually discussing fairly serious subject matter, but he brought humor, and I'm yeah. not necessarily <laughs> sure if that was I guess that comes back to what you were saying, Jeff. He was trying to find himself. What sort of songwriter did he want to be? Did he want to be someone who was going to have a bit of a joke while saying something serious? And I think Bring the Family has the perfect meld of a little bit of humor, but really trying to stay on track with stay focused with what it is that he wants mm. to say. I think what we'll do at this point is maybe have another quick break and then we'll come back and start talking about Bring the Family in, in earnest because we've been uh, talking about all this earlier stuff. So, what? We'll, yeah, we'll go get a glass of water. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Love That Album, episode 100. Hi, I'm John Water. Yeah, hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwing Hauser. Cliff DeYoung. 
derails that. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Hi, this is Jeremy from the Podcast We Listen To podcast. I wanted to take a second to talk to you about a thing that we're putting together called PodCon 2018. This is a convention of podcast listeners, for podcast listeners, and by podcast listeners. And yeah, hosts are listeners too. I listen all day long. This is going to be the fall of 2018 in New Orleans, and it's going to be a blast. It's being put together by myself. Members of the podcast we listen to Facebook group and hosts of several of your favorite shows, including Dina from Twisted Philly and Allie from Insight. Fall of 2018 gives us time to put it together right. We're really looking forward to it. There is so much excitement. The podcast we listen to Facebook group is blowing up over it. For more information, you can join the podcast we listen to Facebook group or you can follow at PodCon2018 on Twitter. And as soon as we finalize more details, we will put those out there for you. In the meantime, just keep listening to your favorite shows and you'll probably hear something about it. You're still listening to Love That Album 100. At least I hope you're still listening. Don't, I hope you haven't turned it off. That would be very depressing for me, but I'll never know. <sighs> Big sigh. Uh, so, yeah, once again, Morris here in Melbourne. Jeff also here in Melbourne. And Dave over in Killarney in Ireland. We're, we're very international this time round. So let's talk about Bring the Family proper. We've been discussing all these earlier things and a little bit about Bring the Family, but uh, let's talk about the album itself. So I, I think one of the reasons for the album's success, I mean, obviously, the obvious thing is the band, and we'll certainly get into that in a moment, but one of the reasons for the band, for the album's success to me is producer John Chelyu. He was already a name that I was familiar with because he produced Los Lobos, a um, favourite album of mine called uh, Good Morning at Slam. And that just, that's such a vibrant, fresh sound. But apparently he'd also produced uh, some other people who I really, really love. Uh, Bert Yanch, ex of Pentangle, Martin Carthy, uh, a great album from uh, the Blind Boys of Alabama, Spirit of the Century, which I've played countless times. And the man who uh, we were speaking about before, I think we went on air, called Richard Thompson, an album called The Old Kit Bag, which uh, I think is a bit of an underrated gem, uh, an album I really, really mm. love. Uh, I agree. Uh, John Celli was apparently a band booker at McCabe's Guitar Shop in Santa Monica. He was a fan, and he was basically the one, I think, who sort of put him in contact with Demon Records, which, as you were saying before, Dave, were the ones who said, look, you know, you want to go sing in the shower or record the phone book, you know, we're, we're up for it here. Have, here, have all the money. Who do you want? And he's, oh, mm. Nick. Well, I said, well, I'd like, uh, look, these are some obscure guys, you know, Nick Lowe and... 
Rye Cooder and Jim Keltner, who I think, apart from Keltner, I'm not sure, but I think he'd, he'd worked with Cooder and uh, Lowe before. Yeah, you're right. It, 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 it toured with uh, Rye Cooder back in 1980 on uh, on the, I think it was on his Borderline tour. So he right. played rhythm guitar in, in his band, yeah, and he'd, obviously he'd worked with, worked with Nick Lowe on uh, Riding with the King. Right, right. Uh, and my experience with Nick Lowe, I mean, I've got a, a, a compilation of Brinsley Schwartz and <laughs> I've got Jesus of Cool and and labor of lust but i sort of haven't really sort of followed up with much of his country material and i know that like he, he was married to roseanne cash wasn't he he was from 79 to 90 yeah um so he he could he could call johnny cash his daddy-in-law <laughs> that's right so so the, i guess the country directions wasn't you know too big of a stretch for nick lowe i don't know about it not being a big stretch i heard nick lowe interviewed one time and, and johnny cash had said to him hey nick you know you're a singer songwriter let's see what you can do write me a song write a song for me and uh, Nick apparently went away and he came up with a song called The Beast in Me <laughs> you know the, yeah. the such such lyrics as you know the beast in me is tamed by fragile bars and uh, you know played it for uh, played it for Johnny Cash who politely listened to about 30 seconds of it before hitting the floor laughing and uh, <laughs> you know he said Nick Lowe said that that was one of the real real low points of his career you know and uh, he found it he found it very hard to, to continue but you know since since then the the song the beast in me has been recorded by uh, many people including Johnny Cash before he right. before he passed on so uh, it's just it's if you ever hear Nick Lowe interview it's a very very funny story John Chelyu, in my opinion, sort of delivered a really, really great and fresh and vibrant sound. And other John Hyde albums that have come since then, you know, have all sounded great, but there's just something. I'm not a producer. I don't have a background in audio engineering. I can't say it, but there's certainly something that's vibrant and something that is very anti-80s of the time. Yeah, well, you're right. It was a very, it was very stripped back, and I think that was down to the fact that they had four days to record it and had no rehearsals. Right. <laughs> you know, and basically, I think as the story goes, Nick Lowe arrived off the plane, and I think he was recording the next day. You know, absolutely. Um, no, he was recording. He was recording that afternoon. He got off the plane. Oh, was it that afternoon? Right, right. He, he said, "Yeah, you've had one or two hours. Why, why he, do you need any more time? You know, here's a song you haven't heard. Just play it. Yeah. But to his credit, he was able to do that as for the musicianship on the album and we've already gone and mentioned who the band is but I want to just sort of focus for a couple of minutes on the drummer and you know me having a drumming background Jim Keltner is an absolute hero to me a couple of the big session drummers of the time who still very very different but I know we're very good friends and both admirers of each other so it's Jim Keltner and Steve Gadd and Steve Gadd has a history mm. with Paul Simon as well as his own jazz material and having played for hundreds and hundreds of people but Jim Keltner you know he was no slouch having played for apart from Paul McCartney he'd played with all the solo Beatles at one stage or another he'd played with Bob Dylan Steely Dan a man Richard Thompson Lucinda Williams <laughs> Leon Russell, uh, one of my jazz guitar heroes, Bill Frisell, Warren Zevon, Randy Newman, all hacks, all amateurs. But, you know, he felt sorry for them, so he played with them. <laughs> and uh, funnily enough, he played with, you know, as well as playing, doing the Bring the Family as a superstar band, he'd also played with another little superstar band, uh, the Travelling Wilburys. So mm. his sound, he's that sort of guy who he serves the song. And he plays all over this album things which sound deceptively simple. You know, you listen to it and you think, yeah. oh, I could do that. And you listen to it and you think, no, but you can't do it like he does. And he brings in, <laughs> he'll bring in little tweaks, little fills that you think, 
how the hell did you do that? And it's just yeah. because you're Jim Keltner. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. An absolute hero. He's, he's one of these guys, Morris, that whenever you hear his playing, you know it's Jim Keltner. Right. There, there, he's, he's, got, he's got a unique sound. There's no one else sounds like him. He, he, he doesn't, you know, no one else plays the kit the way that Jim Keltner does. No, indeed. He thinks like a songwriter. He thinks like an arranger. He thinks almost like a non-drummer, if you will. I mean, he, he's playing the percussion, but he almost thinks like a melodicist. And probably a great example of that for me on this album, this is probably the first song I'm going to sort of refer to, is Thing Called Love. had a big hit mm. for it and uh, far bit for me to say that Bonnie Raitt's version is slick because it, it's not but there's something so very raw about Height's version and Keltner's playing in particular that sounds almost mm. greasy and nasty and it, it, it's it's sexy you know a uh, thing called love it's really should be called a, are you ready for a thing called lust <laughs> it, and, and, and Keltner's driving it he's playing it almost behind the beat and I mean I, yeah. okay, a lot of that is due as well to Nick Lowe because they together are the rhythm section but just is something about what Keltner does that really brings the thunder it, probably because it's raw it, it's not a slick album it's not a slickly produced song and not, nothing no. that Hyatt ever did from this period on was, but they almost. But you compare like an album like Stolen Moments to mm. Bring the Family and what is happening on this song. And Stolen Moments almost sounds in in the Hyatt world, it sounds slick. But not that it's slick compared to mm. what anyone else is doing. But there's just something so raw and vibrant and sexy about this song. Another thing I would say as well is that um, kudos to John Cello's production, uh, especially on that song, because the snare drum sound that he gets on that song just at the start of the song, it's, it's a perfect drum sound for that song, you know? Which is probably what, th- that snare drum sound that you mentioned is probably what is, for me, one of the big differentiators between Hyatt's version and Bonnie Raitt's version. And that's not me slagging yeah. on her version. I, I really, really like it a lot. She's a great performer, great guitarist, great singer in her own right. So full respect to her for that. But the Hyatt version is the version of that song it's the one that if someone would yeah. say play me that song that's the version i beats the original yeah um and i i guess what i like about this song as well from a songwriting perspective a lyric perspective is I, I, one of you mentioned before you know it's him having grown up 
one of the other presenters on the Love That Album podcast and a very good friend and a member of the community is a guy from Houston called Davey McLemore. And he's always said that this album, and come to think of it, always said about Tunnel of Love by Bruce Springsteen, he said, that's a real grown-ups album. And Mm. a song like Thing Called Love, if it had been written by someone younger, someone inexperienced, it would have come out something very, very different. But you get John Hyatt singing things like, you ain't no queen of Sheba, and I ain't your prince <laughs> charming. And the ugly ducklings t- turn into swans. It's him acknowledging as, what, what was he, 35 years old or 36 years old? He was 35, yeah. Yeah, he's a grown-up man. He's saying, you know, love and lust doesn't have to end with you looking like a model from the front pages of some glamour magazine. It's, I find you a real turn on. I really love you and I'm really in lust with you as well. And I like you. We have this complete package and it's not Mm. something that I think a 22 year old songwriter, not even a really, really great 22 year old songwriter who discovered his chops early could have come up with. It's the sort of thing that just comes with experience. And he manages to bring it with that level of honesty and humor. It's, it's funny as well as being on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the great things. You mentioned it earlier, one of the great things about a lot of Hyatt's writing. He can make his point, he can get his, you know, sometimes quite grim points across and but treat subjects that are fairly serious with that sort of real life side of humour that, you know, we we all use, you know, when times get tough, we all resort to the odd joke here and there. I mean it's not as obvious as that in John's songs. Yeah, I mean definitely I mean anyone who can who can get the word amoebas into a into what is essentially a love song is obviously a, you know, a skilled writer. You know, it's not even a word that most most songwriters would even dare to think about. You know, but he, he slips it in there, and it's it's just it's the perfect word. Probably on a par with um, I never thought it would happen with me and the girl from Clapham. Yes, that's also a good line. <laughs> well, well, okay, well, we'll have to have you back when we want to talk about Squeeze. Uh, Till Tilbrook and Difford, another pair of absolutely brilliant songwriters who I worship at their temple. Yep. Mm. But I, I, I guess the thing that needs to be stated here is, you know, he's Hyatt is clever, at least from this point on. He's clever with words, but he's clever with keeping it direct as well. I mean, yes, he uses the word amoeba, but you're not trying to do it in a Dylan-esque sort of way. He's, mm. he's not being oblique. He's still very, very direct. You know straight away what he's getting at. It's not overly yeah. simplistic. It's not like he's saying, I can't think of anything to say, so I'm going to be direct. He just has a good economy with words. I can still be clever with common language and you know, just throw in the occasional word that you wouldn't necessarily hear in your average pop song. I'll let my honesty, I'll let my emotions tell the story, and that will be clever enough and good enough for you. And that's what sucks you in to a song yeah. like A Thing Called Love. Mm. By contrast, so we get a song like Thing Called Love, which is him really confident and very, very strutting. But then you get the other side of the coin. We've already gone and spoken that this album is an album of contrasting emotions. Another song that really touches me, though, is Tip of My Tongue. M-M-D-I. Made 
Not a trace could be found. Now, we get the very wounded approach. You know, he chiding himself. He's saying, I really fucked this relationship up. Mm. There's, there's none of the passive-aggressive humour of the song I mentioned before, Since His Penis Came Between Us. That was another sort of <laughs> breakup song. Or, or another something's gone wrong in our relationship type of song. Yeah. In Tip of My Tongue, we get him saying, some words flew out and made a crash landing. No love survived, not a trace could be found. That's all common language, but it's it's clever use of language. He's using you know, uh, the, the metaphor of a plane crash landing, but it's emotionally honest as to what happened in this relationship. And it, it comes back to me, I think, what I was saying before the break about Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. I think that this is a song in a way that Bruce could have listened to and thought, hey, I get that, I identify with that, because that was with his relationship yeah. at the time. And I think it does take a very honest Tunnel of Love era Springsteen approach. The two were recording their albums in parallel, so they weren't like listening to each other. But I think mm. they, they work very well side by side to my ears. I have to say that of all of the John Hyatt songs, Tip of My Tongue, the lyrics of it are my favourite lyrics. In fact, they're probably some of my favourite lyrics of all time because they just... They're, as you say, they're quite simple and straightforward, but the way that he put them all together to tell that story was was incredible. I, rem- I remember the first time I actually heard that song. There's not a lot of songs that would actually almost move me to tears, but that was actually one of them because you got exactly where he was when he was telling you that story. You know, I just think the way that he put the words together, as as you, you've just said there, that the uh, verse that he just quoted there, Morris, just even in the chorus, you know, I broke your heart with the back of my mind from the tip of my tongue to the end of the line i mean that's just uh that's just poetry (laughs) it is it really really is and i I just keep coming back to this emotionally honest Mm. yeah absolutely i mean i I, I agree with that i mean i've I've been that guy done that i'm hoping you guys haven't um because it's not you know it's not it's, it's not a nice place to be and again you know for me it's talking about the ravages that you know that the alcoholics can do to people around them they don't mean to do it you know, it's not something mm. that they set out intentionally to do. Hence him saying, you know, I broke your heart with the back of my mind. Wasn't, you know, it wasn't something he, he deliberately wanted to do. He wasn't trying to hurt anybody. But now he's at the point where he's realized just how badly he has, you know, utterly, utterly obliterated this relationship. You know, the end of the line, there's no way back. I'd take it back. Time won't let me. No, t- time just takes you further away. I mean, mm. it's gone. Give up. Don't call her. She's not, you know, there's nothing you can say nothing you can do it's the end yeah as they've said it's poetry it really is it's just it, it's not a complex song it's not a it's not a clever song mm. not in that not in that sort of you know contrived cleverness kind of a way but it, you know no. in, in emotional terms it's a very very clever song because you know in half a dozen verses it, it just pinpoints that very 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 dark place of you know regret and fear there's there's not a lot of hope in that song <laughs> I just want to bring something in for a second to talk about it from a musical perspective. We've already sort of gone and raved about how wonderful it is that he had this particular band playing for him on this album, which gives its great sound.
and you know, as we've already gone and acknowledged, you know, Ry Cooter and, and Nick Lowe were no slouches in the songwriting and musical performance department themselves. This is, I think, the one song that I hear on the album that I thought could have fitted in on a Ry Cooter album. I could hear Ry Cooter singing this. If someone yeah. had gone and told me that Ry Cooter had written this, I'd have accepted it. I'd have thought, yep, that, that really sounds like something he could have done. Almost like, like his beautiful, tasteful slide. I think Height would have oh, yeah. picked Ry Cooter more for his taste. I mean, the guy has chops to burn, but that's mm. not what he does. He, he's, he's a, a tasteful player. He's a, a songwriter's guitarist. He's someone who... Absolutely. I, I, I remember when I was at school, I was in a band and uh, the chap who was our guitarist, he was mad into guys like uh, Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. And I remember saying to him one time, give me Ry Cooder over those guys any day. I says, he, you know, they, he, he doesn't play a sort of a hundredth of the notes that they do, but what he does play, he just hits you in the heart, you know? Absolutely. No disrespect to, you know, Satriani or Vi. I know that there are people out there who... Oh, no. And they, they worked hard to, to do their chops, but yeah, I'm, I'm mm. with you. I'll listen to a Ry Cooter record over a Steve Vai album. So uh, if, if you're a Steve Vai fan, please don't turn off the podcast. There's, we'll have other interesting things to say. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Steve Vai fans. <laughs> yeah, both, both of them. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think the theme that's coming through here is economy. Economy of words, economy of sound, mm. economy of notes even. Yes. And I think that's what that's what keeps this whole album, you know, bound together is just the simplicity. I mean I think it probably comes from the way it was recorded, you know, in a in a huge big hurry. Well that's, well, that's it. They didn't have time to do any overdubs for a start. Yeah. So let's <laughs> Listen, let's get this right first time. And yeah. They recorded 10 songs in four days. I mean, that's just unheard of, you know? Yeah, and, and but they're all, they're all such accomplished musicians that they could just bring that mm. from the start. Four days to produce an album that sounds like it's been rehearsed for months and months. It's just yeah. absolutely astounding. But these guys all trusted each other. They trusted what John Hyatt was putting down as a songwriter. And he obviously said, mm. look, I have this image in my head or... I trust you that you know what you're doing to bring it to the table and everyone was happy. I wouldn't be surprised to find out that there's not much in the way of studio bootlegs of this because these, I'm wondering if these are all like first or second takes. Quite possible, absolutely. Yeah, you'd think so. There's just not there's not enough time to do so many multiple takes of songs. You know, a couple of rehearsals no. and then probably record it. You know, it. and didn't 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 they do have a little faith in me? John played it on piano for them to get the idea of the song, and everybody just said that's got to be the take. When the road gets dark and you can no longer see. Just let my love throw a spark And have a little faith in me When the tears you cry Are all you can believe Just give these loving arms a try, baby have a little faith in me And have a little faith in me And have a little faith in me 
Well, actually, mm. I think I read something that when he was recording Have a Little Faith in Me, that the band had actually taken a stab at it and no one was happy with mm. it. So they were having a break and then mm. he just sat at the piano playing and then they that's when they said, oh, right, that's what it needs. There is a, a, a demo tape kicking about in, in the uh, archives of the Anderson Towers here somewhere. Uh, <laughs> when I was uh, <laughs> when, when I was about 21 or 22, my, uh, the guy that was a guitarist in my brother's band uh, owned his own recording studio, Pennycook, the town that uh, Jeff and I are from and, and myself and a friend of mine at school who was a good piano player we went in and did cover of Have a Little Faith in Me nice so uh, yeah yeah again it was done off the cuff essentially you know it didn't take us long to record it but it was just yeah a great great song look it's certainly the emotional core of this album so you've got you know, your dark songs and your emotionally joyous songs you know, earlier on on side one of the album and the mm. album goes to some different places on side two but this really is I mean, I think, you know, Jeff, you've already gone and said it has a spiritual heart, whether or not mm. it's supposed to be related to God or to another person. But it's interesting. He, he takes a focus onto himself. It's rather than like other songwriters might have done. I'm going to support you. I'm going to have faith in you. He's saying, look, this is my turn. Please really have a little bit of faith in me to do right by you. I just love what he comes up with in this song. I mean, look, this is obviously his most famous song. There, there are other songs that he's written for other people but I'm saying that this is probably the song that Hyatt as a performer is the most known for and I think one of those things that he had lightning in a bottle because there are obviously other cover versions of it out there and it's been in some films doing some research for the podcast I got to hear some of the other cover versions and to me they're look I can't say they're terrible because it's have a little faith in me and you can't really completely ruin that song but some people had a damn good try at doing it I believe Delbert McClinton covered it did he? Oh I hadn't I hadn't read that one really Yeah yeah, it's just I have a list of uh, people that have covered Hyatt songs and yeah I just cannot imagine Delbert McClinton doing that song but there you go what <laughs> is uh, duet being done by uh, Leah Michelle who was on this program Glee the least said about that the better her and Bon Jovi and the moment I read the names I thought <laughs> oh my god well look and there was Mandy Moore and there was Jewel and even Joe Cocker mm. I think the problem with these other people doing it is they don't get it you know with, with Hyatt even when he gets to the third verse and he is putting his heart and soul into it but it pretty much the version is fairly understated i mean maybe the last verse he ramps it up a little bit but by and large the song is fairly understated and for these other people it's the big anthem it's the yeah the big song which everyone's going to take out their cigarette lighter and in the stadium <laughs> and wave it about and that's not mm. what this song is about and i just don't think these other people get it that's why mm. i think that his version is the lightning in a bottle i, I wonder if like if height we're recording it today yeah. under completely different circumstances whether he'd even get it right but who knows mm -hmm. yeah the, well, we, we can only be thankful that Celine Dion didn't do a version of it you're <laughs> going to bring out the curse you're going to bring out the, <laughs> the, the, the only other version that I can recall that, that I've heard these two local singing sisters who I've loved for many years and maybe you caught hold of them while you were living here Dave the Bull sisters Vicar and Linda Bull right? yeah yeah, so, I did so they were they were originally in um, beloved band The Black Sorrows with Joe Camilleri and then they struck it out on mm -hmm. their own they released their debut album and it came out with a special edition with a bonus CD of their favourite gospel songs and they include a version of Have a Little Faith in Me. With I've been loving you for such a long time, boy, expected nothing in return, just for you to have a 
with Vicar Bull singing and basically they stay very faithful or she stays very faithful to the John Hyatt version so she's there's just a, a piano and her singing and don't get me wrong I adore the Bull Sisters and I love Vicar's voice and really she's got the voice that is sitting you wonder how do you do that but I think that what she lacked for the song was a little bit of restraint that this song needs right. yeah. I, I just don't yeah. think that she can help herself and it, once again if you're a, a Vicar Bull fan out there don't hang me for it because I'm a huge <laughs> Linda and Vicar fan and I've, I've seen them God knows how many times and I've got a bunch of their albums but just I don't think that that song was right for her voice so yeah, mm, John mm. that's it it was his song anyone else out there thinking of attempting a cover just don't just, yeah. yeah, just just, 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 leave it alone. Leave it alone. I'd, leave it alone. It's something that it's something that you often think about, you know, when you hear cover versions. And you know, you, there are many, many cover versions out there of many, many songs, obviously. And sometimes the cover version you can actually like it better than the original. Oh, it sure. Can, mm-hmm. You know, some, yeah. somebody else's interpretation can appeal to you more. But with this song, and I guess all cover versions, no one actually knows what that song is a hundred percent about, other than other than John Hyatt himself. Yeah. And yeah. he's he's the only one that has the raw emotional connection to it he could actually be talking about himself trying to persuade himself Mm. to have a little faith in me you know which is a Mm -hmm. sort of point that i I think a lot of people in his particular situation coming back from where he's been go through and then you know it it does become about something spiritual and then towards the end it becomes a a person or a, a nominal person in his head so and that's why I think, you know, the, like the Joe Cocker version and what have you, great as they are, they just don't have the right emotional connection. So they're, they're just mm. never going to quite get it right mm. because it's a yeah. very com- complex song. It really mm. is a very complex song for me on this one. Mm. Certainly complex emotionally. And I guess you have to have yeah. lived his specific circumstances. It's not just a song that you think, well, I've got the voice and I have the piano chops. Right. I won't let you hear my version that I recorded in a studio in Pennycook then. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh my God. Oh, oh, have, you, have you recorded a version of it, Dave? Yeah, yeah, I did it in a studio there about 20 years ago, 22 oh, you years were saying, ago. You were saying, oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> oh, well, yeah. uh, so look, present company accepted. I'm sure your version's brilliant. <laughs> uh, but no one else apart from you should have. <laughs> I fucked up. Actually, here's a, just a quick, a quick trivia question for you guys. Do you know... What Australian icon also did a cover version of another song on, on this album? Your Dad Did by Kylie Minogue. <laughs> she might have done. She might have done. I'm not familiar with it, but no, it's it's actually Stood Up was covered by James Rain. Stood up for the first time when I was just 11 months old. And ever since that day, Mama said, I never done what I was told. It was an electric digger dandy, which I actually have. I was listening to it in the car today. Um, so it's actually a good album. Um, it's the only James Rain album I have, but uh, yeah, he did a cover of Stood Up. Yeah, well, it was actually a good version. Look, he's, he's got a very distinctive voice, and I'm sitting here just sort of thinking, would his voice work on a John Hyatt song? Yeah, no, it's actually a pretty good version. I like it anyway, you know. Have a listen if you can. I absolutely will. I want to take this conversation in a little bit of a different direction. So I guess it's sort of covering some similar ground to what we've already discussed, but just sort of moving away from Have a Little Faith in Me. I want to sort of talk a little bit about how the songs are ordered. Last month, 
I got to interview local singer-songwriter who I've adored for many years called Chris Wilson. And he put out an album in 1992 called Landlocked. And that was the focus of Love That Album 99. The opening song on that album is a tune called The Big One. And it's a great song about love. And what, like Hyatt, I guess, he's very, very poetic. And in that song, he's singing, I believe in love. And by the time you get to the end of that song, you believe that he believes in it. He, he, a great lyricist, a great poet. and it, It's a marvelous song. And then he goes to the next song called Alimony Blues, which is <laughs> this cynical level of accusation and regret after a marriage has gone bust, which, you know, he was very quick to point out. He said it was just a songwriter in him because he's been married to the same lovely lady for many, many years. It was just him putting himself as a songwriter in someone else's shoes. But, you know, he sings mm. in that song, you've got a heart like a wrecking ball. You're tearing down doors and walls while I just watch them fall. So we've got this great contrast between someone who absolutely believes in love and someone who's gone and found that love has gone completely sour. When I come down to this album, we look at the opening two songs. Like the opening two songs of Chris Wilson's album, the opening two songs of Hyatt, you get something like Memphis in the meantime. is a great song of joy, uh, a song about having a new start, and let's just go out to Memphis and you know, dig some great greasy rock and roll guitar, and let's have ourselves a fantastic night on the town. And it's a song to me about new love, and let's have some fun. It's all marvelous. And then you get to Alone in the Dark. depends on the way you look at it. It's either a song that's sequentially before this, and then Memphis in the meantime is him starting again, or maybe Memphis in the meantime was his belief in his relationship and this excitement that went bad because his wife had committed suicide a, a couple of years ago, and, and he had the alcohol and drugs problems, as you pointed out, Jeff. But regardless of the autobiographical order of the songs on this album. I just thought it was an interesting parallel between an album that I'd only just discussed 
on the program starts off with complete joy going to complete despondency. Just speaking about Alone in the Dark, that's probably one of the darkest songs, I think, in Hyatt's repertoire. It was certainly one of the darkest songs, period. You know, and he's he's very honest there where you know he sings about it's extreme self-pity and frozen fear because I want you with me and you're not here. They sound like the sort of lyrics where anyone could put together and really they're not. They're, they sound no. like the lyrics of someone who's lived it and they're just perfectly put together and oh look I, I'm, I'm scrounging here for for a description but it's just yeah once again it's that honesty and it is that complete despondency you believe them it's not something that you think it's just songwriting cleverness yeah uh, to me that nothing that song says nothing other than the absolute darkness of an alcoholic rock, reaching rock bottom it, you know the next step down from where he is on that is uh, the ultimate sacrifice I believe it's just so depressing and it's just that utter despair utter despair mm. there's yeah. again there, there's there's not even a, not even John Hyatt can get any humour or hope mm, into that yeah. song you know just that's it you know he talks about I'm all alone on my knees at last right at the end that's possibly the only glimmer of hope in that song he realises that at last he's on his knees he's he's about to give up and do something else mm. you know we all we all get there I mean isn't there a lyric in the song about something about the rosy smelling of death or something so I rub my nose in it babe till the roses smell just like death that's it mm. yeah yeah. there's a lot on this album it seems like he's going a song of joy a song of darkness a song of joy a song of darkness so like on this one mm. on this one side of the album Memphis in the meantime down to alone in the dark you get this thing called love and you got yeah. Lipstick Sunset, which is coming back to Springsteen's Tunnel of Love. I see Lipstick Sunset almost like Springsteen's Cautious Man. There's a lipstick sunset smeared across the August sky. There's a bittersweet perfume hanging in the field. The creek is running high And I left my love waiting In the dawn somewhere to wonder why By the end of the day All her sweet dreams would fade To a lipstick sunset Although cautious man I think the guy eventually comes back and does the right thing by the woman mm. who he loves, whereas Lipstick Sunset, he doesn't. Mm. By the time we get to the second side of the album, you get songs like Your Dad Did and Stood Up, which you get contrast of light and dark within the one song. Yeah. The funny thing for me is Your Dad Did sort of reminded me of a song that sounds nothing like it musically, but it reminded me of a, a song by The Police from their Regatta de Blanc album, a song called On Any Other Day. My wife has burned the that song the husband slash father wakes up and everything has gone wrong in his house the, his wife's gone and told him she's having a love affair his dog bit him and in your dad did well the day was long now supper's on and the thrill is gone but something's taking place yeah the food is cold and your wife feels old but all hands fold as the two-year-old says grace says help the starving children to get well my 
It's a song, once again, of domesticity, and he's not really happy with his life until the penny drops at the end, and he realises, hang on, don't be a fuckwit. I love my life. You know, my, when I see my kids say grace over the meal, I look at these beautiful kids I brought into the world and this wonderful woman who I'm with. Actually, I realise I do love my life. I think all too often songwriters are very, very disparaging about domesticity. And mm. here he starts off going down that road, but he goes to a direction that you don't expect. And he's actually saying, you know, actually, you know what? Hang on. I'm very, very happy with my life. And I think uh, mm. I love that, love that uh, contrast within the one song. I think it could be... Um... <laughs> A kind of a double-edged sword in there. I don't know anything about John Hyatt's relationship with his parents, but given that he fled Indiana when he was very young, I don't think it was great. But I think it could almost be a warning to himself that you're repeating the same pattern. Just like your dad uh, did. Just like your dad yeah. did, you know, right right at the end, you love your wife and kids just like your dad did. Now, that could mean that he's picking on, yeah, your dad your dad loved his wife and kids and you've just realised that you do it too and, and all is well, you know, all is good, you've realised that. Or it could, you love your wife and kids just like your dad did and it's this sort of, that wasn't very good, so you watch what you're doing, son, you know? Uh. Um, do you see what I'm trying to get at there without yeah. being particularly <clears throat> articulate about it, I don't think. Especially when he's talking about you've seen the old man's ghost come back as cream chip beef on toast yes you know mm. it's something something that he's aware of and you're going to flip your lid you know just like your dad did it could be that sort of almost trying to warn himself that if you're not careful you're going to go down the same road and you know your kids are going to steal out of indiana in the back of a pickup truck to <laughs> look, yeah. quote I, another yeah. lyric I, look, I, <laughs> I definitely see that perspective now that you mention it i think but for me i guess it's the turnaround is on the word but so we, you know, we're getting well. The, the day was long. Now supper's on. The thrill is gone. But something's taking place. Yeah, the food is cold, mm. and your wife feels old. But all hands fold as a two-year-old says, "Grace." She says, "Help the starving mm. children to get well." But let my brother's hamster burn in hell. You love your wife and kids <laughs> just like your dad did. I agree. It can go either way. It's yeah. just something in that little turnaround where he thinks, mm. you know what? Just get yourself together, man. This actually isn't so bad. And really, when it comes down to it, you've just had a bad day. Yeah, look, it, it could go either way. And that's the beauty. Once again, I, I guess you were saying before, Jeff, that his songs can be fairly complex. And yet you know, there's a, always a very straightforward reading of the songs. And yet there's something in there that can cause you maybe just a little bit of doubt. And I think that's what makes a, a fantastic songwriter. If it gets too oblique and you're sort of trying to wonder what the hell was that all about, have they done their job? And if it's all too <coughs> straightforward, well, then there's nothing for you to think about. But this, yeah. you can enjoy it purely on a surface level. And, and yet there's still something a little bit for you to think about. And there's and there's two great lines in that song as well that just uh, are completely contrasting. You know, the lines where he says, and the missus wears her robe slightly undone as your daughter dumps her oatmeal on your son. It's just... <laughs> well, see, those are the lines that made me think of that police song on any other day. I think it was Stuart Copeland who wrote the lyrics for that, and I, I, he, he painted a very similar picture of early morning mm. domesticity gone wrong. Um. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think without harping on too much about it, I mean, I think that is the... Again, what it can add it from a position of early recovery, and I know from my, my own experience that you do look at things very very differently and you try to puzzle out you know what's going on and 
all that humdrum domesticity stuff that you've been you know railing against and you know just being restless and irritable about suddenly you look at it none of that's changed hey hang on i have i fit mm. in now you know mm-hmm. what mm. you know and, and it could be something along the lines that he's, he's just realizing that maybe to go back a bit of what i said before maybe he's just realizing that he had a narrow escape and he missed out being a chip off the old block you know it was a lucky mm. escape he can actually now be part of this that's going on and actually realize the real value in it. Right. Why does it come as such a shock every road upon which you rock? Your dad already did. You know, it's sort of, uh, you know, j- just don't go there, John. You know, you've, you've, you've gone far <laughs> enough. You've you've pulled it back from the, the edge of hell and hamsters. <laughs> I, and that's, a, that's the other thing. I don't think I've, I can recall any other rock song mentioning hamsters. So No, there wouldn't be a lot of them, that's for sure. Yeah, so, no, well, I don't think con- there's a lot of ham, hamster lyrics out there. Congratulations. <laughs> All the listeners in the audience are going to write in with their top ten hamster songs. I'm, I'm, bring it on, people. Bring it on. Uh, hamsters and amoebas on the one album. Fantastic. Yes. Right, There's well, a juxtaposition. <laughs> before we sort of finish off, I mean, because we're not sort of like going to go song by song, I think, but we've gotten a lot of our points across about the moods that Hyatt was in and how we're in great admiration of his songwriting ability and the, the band that he'd gone and put together for this. But I think you would have said before, Dave, we would be fairly remiss if uh, we didn't mention something about Little Village. Jeff and I went to see them. That was our first uh, first live exposure to John Hyatt. We actually oh, wow. saw Little Village playing in Edinburgh, uh, I think in 92, if I remember rightly. And uh, yeah, I mean, what, what a treat to see those four guys on stage. You know? oh, it was fantastic. From memory, they started off playing pretty much the, the Little Village album, and then mm-hmm. it, it just became, you know, they said, let's do some of our, our individual songs now. And it, yeah. But it, it, it basically like it became Bring the Family, and, and assorted other John Hyatt songs, you know, and because mm. he was he was out in front and in charge, so you know I think he was calling the yeah. set list, so uh, yeah. he stuck to yeah. his own back catalogue. It was oh, it was yeah. absolutely fantastic. So so could mm-hmm. that have had something to do why the band didn't last? Because there were stories of there being personality conflicts and, and clashes. Yeah, I think ego has got the better of everything, you know. <laughs> I would imagine it'd be quite hard to keep four guys as talented as that together long term. Yeah, Hyatt did say that they were going to, they, they had intended to revisit it and do sort of a, a little village too, but they, they just couldn't make up their mind exactly what the content was going to be. And mm. it probably is precisely for those ego reasons. Everybody wanted their songs in and nobody yeah. else's. Yeah. For the listeners out there who may not sort of really know what Little Village was, it was um, basically all, all the musicians who'd been on Bring the Family, so John Hyde himself, obviously, Raikuda, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner. There'd been, I guess, a lot of calls from the fans to reform. I mean, Hyde had gone and produced a couple of really cracking albums mm. leading up to Little Village in uh, slow turning. 
which was once again with another band that he returned to later on in the Goners and the aforementioned Stolen Moments. But there was so much affection and so much respect for Bring the Family. People were saying, well, you just struck lightning in the bottle with that particular lineup. Can you do another album? And I guess amongst the four of them, they decided, okay, well, let's do it, but let's do it as a band rather than mm. as a John Hyatt album. But, you know, to my way of thinking, and probably to a lot of other people's way of thinking, maybe that was just something of a pretense, because there's only, I think, two Nick Lowe songs and one Raikuda song, and, you know, Kelton mm. not being a songwriter. So it's really like, I think, what, nine or ten Hyatt songs, three non-Hyatt songs, and, you know, Hyatt singing lead on all of his own songs. So it still is like a John Hyatt album, but not necessarily in the class of Bring the Family. But So what mm. were your guys' thoughts when you first heard when you first heard the record? Well, I, I wasn't too impressed. I don't own a copy of it, so there you go. That speaks oh, well. volumes. <laughs> I, I, I just, I don't know. I think, I think after that run of those four brilliant John Hyatt albums, I think it just came to me personally as a bit of a letdown, you know? Yep. And it was a real shame because I really wanted it to be a great album, but it just, yeah, just, just didn't didn't do it for me, unfortunately. I would agree, I'm the same. I mean, I do have a copy of it. And there are a couple of songs, two, three songs on there from memory that do get to the, you know, the, the heights that you would expect with these guys. But yeah, there's an awful lot of... Um, what were you thinking on there you know it's um it's sort of like yeah i, I think it's been done for commercial reasons you know let's uh, let's put the band back together guys you know and uh, mm. see what we can do and it because it's those four guys you know they re- they released it and you know didn't quite get away with it i guess is the bit for me i mean there are one or two songs on there that i, I really like some something about uh, don't think about her when you're trying to drive oh, yeah, i was going to say that's probably uh, that's probably the one song on that album that could have fit on bring the family she don't know who you're missing driving down that lonesome road tonight looking for one starlight glowing or her face shining in the dash light driving out of magic Back and forth across your mind Tires squeal as the wheels spin faster Nothing else on this yes. album has the emotional honesty that could have fitted on Bring the Family. And look, you know, not, every, not every album has to be about pulling out your heart and bearing it to the world. Mm. You, know, you can have yeah. a fun rock and roll album. And I'll sort of throw my card into the ring here that this is a lot better than I recall. I hadn't listened to it in years. I only listened to it in the last couple of weeks as preparation for this. And I thought, you know, it's actually a lot better than I first sort of thought it was. But yeah, it's not you know, the classic that it was. But yeah, sorry, other songs, Jeff? Uh, other songs, I think I like Fool Who Knows. I think Nick Lowe sings that one. Yes, that's right. That, I do like that one. And yeah, the, the Don't Think About Her When You're Trying to Drive one. And Do You Want My Job or that's something, right. is it? Yeah, I think yeah. is. I think other than that, those three would be mm. the ones that I would uh, I would play. I must actually try and get hold of a copy and revisit it like yourself, Morris, you know, because I actually, I literally haven't heard it for 
best part of 25 years, you know, so. I guess what you need to do is separate it from bring the family, but, the, yeah. I mean, I, I guess a lot of Hyatt fans were probably thinking, uh-oh, when the opening song comes on and it's called Solar Sex Panel, and you think, this is <laughs> this is more akin to, you know, apart from the fact that it sounds more like a Roots Rock album, it, it sounds like more mm. like the sort of thing that you would have expected from his pre-A&M days. It's him going mm. back to, uh, you know, there's, there's innuendo to burn <laughs> on that song, you know, so... Almost as much as Littlehead. Right. <laughs> Which I, I, was, I was telling Jeff, to this day, I've still not listened. And th- that's probably something else I should bring up, is that whilst I am a huge Hyatt fan, I'm not actually a completist. And I've mm. you know, got like you know, the A&M albums, and I've got the Capitol albums, and a couple of uh, the New West albums. You know, the, the Tiki Bar mm. is open and crossing mm. money. Mm. Oh, that were the Vanguard albums. What, what was the, the last? Oh, no, it was a 2010 and that was that was where I thought yeah I I sort of thought he'd phoned that one in (laughs) look I I still am convinced he's a great lyricist uh, a really fantastic Mm. lyricist but I don't think melodically there was anything on that album that really stood out for me so Mm. I don't know where do you guys sort of see the rest of his back catalogue without necessarily just talk about it in its own right like are there any what would be the next favourite album apart from say Bring the Family to yeah well I mean certainly for me I mean the the, the albums round about that sort of 80, 87 to 91 period were really um, I think his pinnacle you know all, all you know as you were saying slow turning stolen moments perfectly good guitar all, all really kind of high quality songs all the way through I was just actually saying to Jeff um, last night when we were chatting Walk On which was the one they did the mid 90s I'm ashamed to say I don't actually own a copy of it I heard songs off it at the time and I just thought it was a bit patchy there's one or two of his later albums as well like you Morris I'm not actually a completist I do have things like you know the Tiki Bar is open and uh, Crossing Muddy Water stuff like that and I do stick them on from time to time but I just felt some of his later stuff got a bit patchy to the extent that I didn't actually even bother buying a few of the albums now I do have most of them but uh, but there are one or two that I, that I, I still don't have you know Walk On is one that I came back to I, I bought it when it came out listened to it I think maybe once or twice and then thought uh, maybe a bit of a grower and then you know never went back to it I went back to it not so long ago and you know there's there's a a lot of really good numbers on there but it's maybe just you know me i'm listening to much more of that americana sort of stripped down stuff beneath this gruff exterior is a great album um i would recommend that mm. if you if you want to catch up with some of what he's been doing since mm. although it's, it's it's quite it's about 15 years old now i think and mm. uh, more recently uh terms of my surrender his most recent album oh yeah it's yeah. it's actually really good. There's a lot mm. of very very strong and dirty jeans and mudslide hymns as, yes, as, as well as having a, a great title. All right. Well, I think that at this stage we've gone and um, covered all we really need or want to say for John Hyatt and bring the family and peripherals and associated. So we made it. We've recorded episode 100. Once uh, mm. once we uh, finish this, I've now got to see make sure that we don't have an empty file. But uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope not. No. So in all my excitement in finally getting to talk about John Hyatt's Bring the Family on the show today, I sort of forgot to do the introduction for Eric's segment, an album I love, where he discusses the Sarwin album Initium. So consider this my introduction and take it away, Eric. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want you. I want two, three, four. Now it's time for An Album I Love with 
Eric Reanimator. Welcome to Love That Album, episode 100, featuring He Who Shall Not Be Named. And uh, Morris told me that uh, He Who Shall Not Be Named was going to be the topic of discussion, so I figured I would go with that by talking about the 1984 album by Sawin, or Sam Hain. And I'm going to use Sam Hain because that is the common version, but yes, I know it's Sawin for all you purists out there. This is the band that Glenn Danzig fronted between the time of the Misfits and his band Danzig. Kind of a more goth, post-punk, uh, I don't know what else you'd call it, uh, not quite new wave, but transitional band between the punk of the Misfits and the blues metal of Danzig. The album I'm going to be talking about is Initium, and my copy is, is the 1987 version that includes the re-recorded Unholy Passion Sessions, which were a couple of songs that were added on to the end of the disc. This might be monetarily the most valuable disc in my collection. It goes for 70, 80 bucks, depending on condition. Mine's probably about worth about 50. Not that I'm looking to sell, but let's take a listen. Beyond Manspheres, I am the end! Now is release! Now comes revenge! Now is the pain! You think you've known pain? You've known nothing! Feel my touch! Feel the passing surge! Know the meaning of...
playing now is the track I'm really passion, which is that re-recorded EP from 87 that was amended to the end of this album. You can kind of hear the change. Uh, you can hear early echoes of the Misfits for sure, and then more slowed down gothy stuff that would lead to Danzig. And I believe the story was that Rick Rubin had heard Sam Hain and wanted to work with Danzig into making him into something more metal and more commercial. And shortly after this, we got the first Danzig album, which is very much a blues, hard rock, heavy metal kind of album. Maybe 70s hard rock more than metal. It's definitely part of that uh, wave of metal that became part of alternative in the early 90s. Now, Danzig is a dicey proposition for some people. Sometimes he's too comic booky. Sometimes he's too quote-unquote brutal. Uh, sometimes he doesn't really sing but barks but when he croons it's like the evil Elvis which has become the cliche I don't know there's a reason that I only own one Sam Hain album even though looking back I probably should have picked them all up on CD because they're worth money I even missed out on buying the box set that came out in the late 90s early 2000s which is once again out of print I will say this the Danzig sitting on a money maker if he ever wants to get this stuff back in print because my understanding is he still owns the catalog here. At any rate, um, he who could not be named, I figured uh, I'd match somebody with that curse with somebody else who is kind of a curse. He's kind of a prisoner of his own success, where he, Danzig that is, became successful later on as Danzig, but now is infinitely more famous for his early work, which he is largely disowned. and. Sam Hain, which he is not ignored, but is kind of downplayed to a lesser extent. That is uh, what he'll be remembered for. The first line of his obituary will definitely be former lead singer of the Misfits. Whatever. Uh, I'm going to lead now with a song called Archangel, which has always been rumored to have been written for Dave Vinian of The Damned, who, uh, if you've listened to love that album or interact with me on Facebook, you know they're one of my favorite punk bands. They are currently on their 40th anniversary tour. I've seen them live over the years, and they always put on a great show, so check them out. Here is Archangel, and I'll catch you all next time. I just add a couple of facts, Morris. Sure, absolutely. Go for it. At the Zoo by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. 
got hamsters in it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay, there you go. Paul Simon got in before John Hyatt. All right, okay, good. Very and, uh, good. Very and, good. I th- and I think there's a Peter Gabriel song that has amoebas in it, but I, I, I wouldn't quote, quote myself on that. It's, my brain's been burning away as we've been talking. So. Sounds like a more right. a Genesis lyric. All right. Um, on, on that uh, note, where mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, just do a little bit of housekeeping here. I mean, I know Joanne went and made mention at the beginning of the show that how to contact us, how to join the Facebook group, and all that sort of thing. So you've got all those details. I'm not going to repeat them. But uh, next month will be episode 101. Now, technically, I'm putting this episode early May. It's April's episode, but I'm putting it out early May. I've got a whole lot of things going on, so I'm not sure if episode 101 will be out late May or if it'll be out sometime in June. Just keep an eye on the Facebook page. Uh, keep yourself subscribed to the show in iTunes so the show will just get automatically downloaded to you. I thank you for your patience. But episode 101 should be uh, another good one. Last year, I did on my other podcast called See Here, I did a chat with a local rock historian called Ian McFarlane and we were talking about a film from the mid-70s called Oz, a rock and roll road movie and Ian was just like walking encyclopedia of information about Australian rock music of the 70s and about that film but because he is in fact a rock historian he has just gone and released the second edition of his book, The Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. Now, the first one came out, I think, about 18, 19 years ago. It's been out of print for many years, and it's highly valued by local fans of Australian rock music. And it's taken him till, I think, about a month or two ago to release the second edition. There's a whole lot of newer entries I've gone out and bought a copy for it, and let me tell you, if you are a fan of rock music in general, not just, I mean, obviously, if you're a fan of Australian rock music, it goes without saying you need this in your collection because it's so well-researched, so well-laid out. But even if you're a curious fan from overseas, you know some stuff about Australian rock, but you just want to broaden your scope and you want to know more about local rock music, then I wholly recommend that you go and search this book out, The Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop. And that's been put together, as I said, by Ian McFarlane, all by himself. Years and years of research, not from looking on Wikipedia or on websites. He's done all the research himself. So this is really a research project of I can't think of anything else. Herculean strength. Just absolutely amazing. Really, really fantastic. So next month, he'll be on the show to talk about his encyclopedia. We had plans to talk about one of his very, very favorite Australian albums. We'll see how we're going for time. I've got to do a little bit of research into that and come up with something intelligent to say. So that is on next month. And uh, I think that pretty much is it. And Morris, can I, sorry, can I just uh, quickly say one thing? I've just suddenly come back into my head. It happens when you're my age, you know, you lose track of things and then they come back. Mm. Uh, we, were, we were talking earlier, I said to you before the show that there is a tenuous link between John Hyatt and Richard Thompson. Oh, yes, yes, yes. What was that? Yeah, what it was is John Chelyu, as you rightly said earlier, was the booker for McCabe's um, in, in the 80s. Mm. But his predecessor in the same job was a lady called Nancy, Nancy Covey. Covey. That's right, yes. Yeah, who is married to? Richard Thompson. Richard Thompson. There you go. So there you go. 
Ah, yes. Well, we, be, we don't want to talk about domesticity because uh, shortly after that, we get stories about uh, Linda Thompson beating Richard up mm. uh, on, their, mm. on their final tour together. Okay. But that's Fair dom- enough. That's, dom- that's domesticity. We don't want to go there. Thus ends episode 100 of Love That Album. I've been so grateful to the two of you for uh, being part of this. This was really no small achiever for me. I know that other people have a regular thing and they record shows every week and some people do it, do the shows by themselves and I salute you. I don't know how you do it. Here I'm doing this once a month and I sometimes think it's, it's hard work but I love doing it and that's why I keep doing it. So thank you both so much for being part of this. Thank you so much to anyone who's bothered to listen to the show and spread the word. We'll see you next month on episode 101. And Dave, I hope that this first time on a podcast, ladies and gentlemen, his first ever podcast, I think you've done a sterling <laughs> job. You're coming back. Thank, thank you very much. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself. It was There's nothing I like more than just to go on with good friends and uh, talk music. I mean, what, what, what a better way to spend a couple of hours, you know? There's, there's nothing, nothing better in, in my opinion, and that's why I continue to do this podcast, even when time-wise it gets to be a little bit of a struggle. But, um, yeah, no, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thanks just for having me. Our first, thank you, yeah. our first discussion ever and such a great one. Jeff, you've been with us from episode two. It was our fate. We had to do this one together. So now, hopefully, for- it's, hopefully it survives and, and, and can be sent out there so that the, the listener can enjoy it. Uh, yeah, ex- ex- oh, hang on. Wait, wait, what are you saying? One listener? I've got at least two, you know. Uh, may, may, maybe a third one has joined out of curiosity because this is the 100th episode. So you, you never know. Well, I might, I, might have actually, I might have actually been able to double your listenership because I've told at least three people who are definitely going to listen. Woohoo! Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Love that album hits the big time. (laughs) All right. So uh, however many listeners out there, thanks once again for listening. And uh, until next month, please listen to some great music out there. Read some great books. Watch some great films. Be nice to each other because in this nasty world of ours, we need each other to be nice to each other. Lord, we don't need another mountain. We have mountains and hills left to climb. I'm going into a Burt Bacharach frame of mind. No, no, sorry, I won't do that. (laughs) Just be nice to each other. Stop it. And well, sorry. And we'll speak uh, (laughs) next month on uh, Love That Album. All the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.